Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this audio Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 15. 12 through 16, I'm sorry. The end of chapter 4. Our context is this in our last audio in the first part of the chapter, verses 1 through 11. We talked about entering into the rest. The rest, of course, being a symbol. Originally, the rest was the the children of the Exodus entering into the promised land, and that became a symbol for people have various things, either heaven or grace and peace is what I think it is, the grace and peace that comes from Christ and being free from the law. So now we're going to start in verse in this section as we talk about Jesus, our great high priest, starting in verse 12. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the ideas and thoughts of the heart. Now, the first question I asked myself when I read that is, what in the world does that have to do with anything? It seems like it's just a, a nice verse that's thrown here in the middle, and it doesn't really fit the context too much. And, of course, this is a famous verse that's used all the time, talking about the Bible. Well, the verse is sandwiched between verse, uh, verses 11 and 13, and in my view, the verse is mentioned as an incentive, an incentive to obedience. Because in verse 11, we read this, Let us then make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience, i.e. apostatizing and going back to the Jewish legalistic religion, religion, enter into the rest and grace and peace of Jesus Christ. So don't be disobedient in verse 11. And then in verse 13, we read this, No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Now, why is the Word of God mentioned? He's, the Word of God is mentioned in order to keep people from being disobedient because... The Word of God is penetrating and makes all things naked and exposed to God. So if God knows what you're doing, apostatizing Jews, you might not want to do it. You might not want to apostatize. And the Word of God, since it's so effective and in convicting you of your sins and so forth, and knowing what you're thinking, maybe you better not think about apostatizing. That's the best I can do as far as why that verse is put in here. Now, what is the Word of God that's living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword? Well, interestingly enough, the commentators are greatly divided on this issue, as Adam Clark says, and we'll give you some options. The first option is the written Word, and of course this is how most people use it today. God's written words, but not just in general, but words that are specifically uttered in judgment, because of course we're talking about judgment for those who enter into a pattern of disobedience and don't enter into the rest of God and, and apostatize. Here's some examples of scriptures that are used in, uh, in, that are uttered in judgment, quoted in the book of Hebrews, which were, of course, taken from the Old Testament. The Old Testament word, remember, the New Testament word wasn't canonized yet, wasn't collected together in a canon. So this would be the Old Testament word of God mentioned in judgment. For example, Hebrews 3, 7 through 11, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Well, your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with this generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest. Well, there's a, a word of judgment in the last chapter. Then here in this chapter, in verse 3, chapter 4, verse 3, I swore in my anger they will not enter my, my rest. Verse 5 in Hebrews 4, They will never enter into my rest. They will never enter my rest. So... That sounds like this is what the author of Hebrews is talking about, the inscripturated Word of God in the Old Testament, which is effective and penetrates 
far as the soul and the spirit and tells you that you're not going to enter into his rest by apostatizing. That's one option, the written word. How about the living word, Jesus? John Gill affirms that. Adam Clark mentions it, but doesn't believe it, I don't think, because he says there are only two places where word is used to refer to Jesus, the living word, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. All right, that's Jesus. Revelation 19.13, he wore a robe stained with blood, and his name is the word of God. So Jesus, the living word. Now there's another text that's probably textually suspect in the King James Version, 1 John 5, 7. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And the Word would be would be Jesus, but I don't think that we can count that one because my memory tells me that text is very, very suspect and not witnessed by a lot of manuscripts. So we'll leave that one out. So you're talking about two places where the Word of God is talking about Jesus. So that makes that option a little bit weak. Some people say for option three, the word of God that's so effective like a two-edged sword is the gospel, the preached word. This is Adam Clark mentions this, Hebrews 4.2, for we also have received the good news just as they did, but the message they heard, the word they heard did not benefit them. So we see the word is used in the sense of the preached gospel message. Fourth option might be the written word and the preached word together. Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown suggest this option. Let me give you a quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. The written word of God is not the prominent thought here, though the passage is often quoted as if it were. Still, the word of God, the same as that was preached in Hebrews 4.2, that I just finished reading to you, used here in the broadest sense, but with special reference to its judicial power, includes the word of God, the sword of the spirit with double edge, one edge for convicting and converting some, another for condemning and destroying the unbelieving. Well, that's very nice. So they believe, James of Fossum believe, that the word that's, that the author of Hebrews is talking about here is the written word and the preached word. Here's a verse backing them up. Revelation 19:15. a sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. So there we have Jesus, the famous picture of Jesus on the white horse with a sharp sword, sword in his mouth. That's the word of God, discipling the nations and winning the nations. Now you can put all that together, though. It could be all three. The written word, the scriptures, option one, option two, the living word, Jesus, or option three, the preached word, the gospel, or you can just say it's all three. I'm not going to make any distinctions. I don't think it matters. There's another option, which is kind of off the wall, taking a very a specific definition of logos, word. Adam Clark mentions this as the mind of God. So we could say, for the mind of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword. In other words, he knows what you're doing down there. He's able to judge the ideas and thoughts of the heart. He's able to lay open, to uh, lay you open, exposed and naked to truth, naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom he must give an account, as he says in the next verse. That's an interesting idea. I looked up the definition of logos in Thayer's. There's a lot of definitions, but here's one that fits this idea. Reason, the mental faculty of thinking, meditating, reasoning, calculating. Of course, the Greeks use philosophically that word all the time in that sense. So it's the mind of God that's living and effective. So we've got four good options there. Very interesting. No wonder their commentators are so greatly divided, as Adam Clark says. But anyway, I'm just going to take it as the word of God in general, not making any specific distinction. It's living, the author says. Contrast the modern attitude. Oh, the Bible. It's dead. It's stuffy. It's a paper pope. How many times do you hear that nonsense? That's from new evangelical, neo-orthodox type people. Mystics. 
Now, hey, I'm all in faith. Hey, I've had charismatic experiences. I believe in in all kinds of spiritual experiences, but not when you start calling the Bible a paper pope. You've lost me rule soon then because pretty soon people get off into emotionalism. But worse than emotionalism is they get off into saying, I can say what I can do what I want to do. I don't care what the Bible says. Bible says homosexuality is a sin. I don't care. I'm going to be a homosexual anyway. On and on and on people go when they start disobeying the Bible. Now, the Word of God is said to be double-edged or two-edged. It's better at th- A double-edged sword is better at thrusting and penetrating than a single-edged sword. And so that better fits the imagery of God's Word, piercing and dividing. Now, the piercing and dividing goes between the separation as far as, it penetrates as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Now, a lot of people take that as saying the sword penetrates to the point where soul and spirit meet and where joints and marrow meet. There's only one problem with that. Joints and marrow don't meet. If you think about it, the joint of a bone is on the outside and the marrow is on the inside of the bones. They don't really connect. It's, it just doesn't fit there. So here's a way you can solve that problem. The sword divides each of the series. So we say the Word of God is penetrating as far as the separation of the soul as far as the separation of the spirit, let's use division. Home and Christian Study Bible says separation. I like division better. Another translation. Penetrating as far as the soul divides, as far as the spirit divides, as far as the joints divide, and as far as the marrow divide. Where you split them open, take each one individual in that series, and then it makes perfectly good sense. Now, this is a famous passage here that is involved in the famous dichotomy and trichotomy debate. Dichotomists believe that there are two parts of man, the corporeal part, the body, the flesh. It's one part, and the other part is the soul-slash-spirit, the immaterial, incorporeal part of man, and there's no distinction between soul and spirit. The, soul, the incorporeal part of man might do different things, might think, might have feelings, might have emotions, might communicate with God, but it's all part of the same thing. The trichotomist, on the other hand, believe that you have a body, that's part one, part two is your soul, and part three is your spirit. Now, I'm not going to get in that debate. I've done that elsewhere, I think. I'm not going to do it here. I'll just say right here that however you, you can take this passage and say the division is in the soul, and then and you have another division in the spirit, and the word of God goes to that division, another division in the joints, and another division in the marrow. In other words, you're not splitting up joints and marrow, and you're not splitting up soul and spirit, because that doesn't make sense. But if you do it the way I just said, splitting each individual entity in that four-part series, if you do it that way, I don't think it affects the dichotomy-trichotomy debate one way or the other. I don't think it does. At least, without examining it further, I can't see how it does. The main point, by the way, is not dichotomy or trichotomy. It's rather that the soul, the spirit, the joints, and the marrow are hidden. They're all inside the body where you can't see them, but they can't hide from the Word of God, and that's the point, is you can't hide, you apostatizing Jews, You can't hide from the Holy Spirit. He knows what you're doing. He knows that you're thinking about apostatizing, so don't do it. And verse 13 backs that idea up. We read this. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now that word exposed, according to Wust, the famous dispensational Greek scholar that lived in North Chicago, where I met my wife, He says that that word exposed, the Greek word means to bend back the neck of a victim to be be slain. 
So when we say that we're exposed to the eyes of God, that means we've got our necks bent backward, ready for him to slay us, if you want to press it that far. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown and Clark say that it has been supposed that the phraseology is sacrificial, just like Woost says. Clark disagrees with that assessment. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown agrees with that assessment and says that's exactly what is meant here. Here's what Adam Clark says. The verb trakelizo, from which the apostles tetra Kalisthemena comes, signifies to have the neck bent back so as to expose the face to full view, that every feature might be seen, and this was often done with criminals in order that they might be better recognized and ascertained. In other words, Clark doesn't think it's sacrificial. He thinks it has to do with jerking criminals' heads back so their neck's exposed. But whatever it means, it's quite colorful. And not only are are our necks exposed to God, (laughs) so... But we are also naked before God. Here's what John Gill says about that adjective. The words are an allusion to wrestlers who exercised naked and took each other by their necks and collars. And when one was thrown upon his back, as the word rendered open is by some translated, he was publicly exposed and known, or to the putting of a creature in such a posture when sacrificed, or rather to the cutting of it up and laying open its entrails. So Gale does say it's a sacrificial language language but also he throws in some wrestling too because when a wrestler he's naked he gets thrown down to the ground his neck's exposed to his opponent that's great imagery god knows exactly what we're doing so don't think about apostatizing hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 therefore i.e since no creature is hidden from god is in verse 13 therefore since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens So therefore, since no creature is hidden, and since there is a way of escape through our high priest Jesus, who's passed through the heavens, it might be a smart thing to hold fast to your confession. So let me read the verse again. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession. Now let's talk about Jesus, our great high priest. We need to look at the Old Testament institution of the high priest first. You know there was 12 tribes of Israel, and only one of those tribes from one of those tribes, could there be priests? Or, or should, or should I say, could there be workers in the temple? That was the tribe of Levi. Now, when I say workers in the temple, I mean things like doing police work, taking care of all the utensils in the temple, doing repair work, doing cleaning work, that kind of stuff. You could be a Levi, a Levite to do that. But if you wanted to be a priest, you had to be from a special family of Levi, and that was from the family of Aaron. So there were a bunch of priests that were Aaronites. But if you wanted to be high priest, there's only one of the family of Aaron that could be the high priest. So it was a great honor to be the high priest. Jesus was our high priest. Now, this high priest in Israel's time, he had special garments. He alone represented the nation of Israel before Yahweh on the annual Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when he went into the Holy of Holies and he sprinkled the blood of the sacrificial goat on the mercy seat for the sins of the whole nation. Whereas Jesus, our high priest, He not only offers the sacrifice, he is the sacrifice, he offers the sacrifice of himself. He goes into the heavenly holy of holies, sprinkles his own blood, and and his atonement is not for the nation of Israel, but it's for the new Israel. All those who believe in him now, the church of Jesus Christ. And of course, all the way through this, the theme is Jesus, our high priest, is greater than the earthly Jewish high priest. Because that Jewish high priest didn't pass through the heavens, but Jesus did. Jesus, the Son of God, and of course, Son of God is a messianic title, just like Son of Man is. So he was not only high priest, he was the Messiah. So the author here is making his point in spades. 
Jesus is a great high priest, greater than the earthly Jewish high priest. Now, given that fact, let's hold fast to our confession. In other words, let's don't go running back to Judaism where you think you're safe and secure. You're not going to be safe and secure in just a few years. The book was written in the 60s and 8070, before a generation passed away since Jesus spoke in 8030, Israel was going down. And you want to run back into that? You want to run back into the Jewish nation where you're going to be burnt to a crisp? Here's a quote from Adam Clark. Quote, those Jews who wish the Christians of Palestine to apostatize to them, Clark says, quote, you, no, excuse me. Here's what Adam Clark says, that the Jews who were wishing the Christians of Palestine to apostatize, here's what, in Clark's imagination, they could have been saying, quite reasonably. Here's what they could have been saying to the Christians. You have no tabernacle, no temple, no high priest, no sacrifice for, for sin. Without these, there can be no religion. Return, therefore, to us who have the perfect temple service appointed by God. We've got this nice temple here, and we've got all these priests. We can't see nothing but a bunch of you meet together in little prayer in little house church meetings in your homes you have no temple you have no sacrifice you've got nothing and the book of the author of the book of hebrews says yes sir we got something we got a better high priest than you got this is an anti-judaism polemic here in the book of hebrews pro-christian anti-judaism hold fast to their confession the confession of course is their faith in jesus the, the messiah the word there according to bauer arndt gingrich and Donka, the famous Greek lexicon says to declare publicly, to acknowledge. So holding fast to the confession means you still maintain your public confession of the faith. You meet together publicly. Well, and I say publicly in your homes. You meet together as Christians, and when somebody asks you, you tell them, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. None of this secret religion business. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knew our weaknesses by personal experience, not by omniscience. Here's how he knew us. Here's how he could sympathize with us as a human being. He worked in a lowly job, a carpenter, till he was 30. He, he knew what hunger was. He went 40 days in the wilderness without eating. He knew what being tired was. John 4, 6, Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. This is when he when he met the Samaritan woman, and it says right here in John 4, verse 6, Jesus, worn out from his journey. He was bushed. He knew what it meant to be tired. He knew what it meant to be homeless as he wandered around Israel in his ministry. He was misunderstood by his brothers. His disciples were constantly saying, Oh, Jesus, let's, we're going to start a messianic kingdom. He says, No, guys, I'm going to get crucified. They didn't understand him. He, he, he experienced grief. He cried at the funeral of Lazarus. And, of course, he was persecuted by people who didn't like him, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Now, I've got an interesting thought question for you. If he sympathized with our weaknesses, was he ever sick? Now, human beings get sick all the time. Gosh, it, it, when you listen to prayer requests in church, how many times is it for physical ailments? It's almost like our body was not really meant to exist on this earth while having to fight for breath every day. The medical profession is a huge profession because people want to get well. Now, fortunately, a lot of people do get well, but sickness is, is just a millstone around humanity's neck, like poverty is. Well, was Jesus ever sick? Well, I don't know. It never says in the Bible one way or the other. I guess we could speculate. If you want to say he sympathized with us in every way, we could say, well, yeah, he got sick, so he knows what it's like to be sick, so we could pray to him when we're sick. Well, that sounds real nice, but there's something in me that says, I don't, I don't see Jesus getting sick. 
You know, sickness is much like sin. He didn't have any sin. But, of course, sickness is different than sin, so you, you could make an argument that Jesus got sick. Sickness is unlike sin in the fact that it can come upon us without any fault of our own. So I don't know if Jesus got sick or not. I just can't believe he did. I would think he'd say, uh, get away from me. I don't know. But we do know that Jesus was a high priest. He sympathized with us, but he was without sin. So that was one way he was different than us. Now, think about that. He can't sympathize totally with us as being a sinner. He can't really suffer the grief and the anguish and the and being stricken in one's conscience when we sin. But on the other hand, when he was on the cross, he bore the sins of the world. I bet he felt the sin then, separation from God. So, yeah, he was... He was he sympathized with us there, even on the cross, even with the, uh, even though he never sinned. Here's a good quote from a brother named Marchant King, who I do not know, but I lifted this quote from somewhere. It is not he who goes with the storm who knows its full force, but he who stands against it. In other words, Jesus knew what sin was like because he stood against sin. He knew how horrible sin was even more than people who sinned because we're just rolling with the flow when we sin, but Jesus stood against it. He paid the price. We yield much quicker to much less temptation than Jesus ever did. So Jesus had to stand against all that sin. So he, he suffers with us in the sense that he knew what temptation was like. And, of course, that gets into the great theological question. Could Jesus have ever sinned and thus ceased being the Son of God? And I, to my, my response to that is, oh, no, that's not possible. But then you say, well, then how could Jesus really be tempted? The best analogy, I heard it on a podcast, is let's say that you haven't eaten in three days and... You are tied to a post and somebody brings a pizza fresh out of the oven and they bring that thing right in front of your face and you can smell it with your nose, but your hands are tied up. Now, you are you tempted? Do you want something that you ain't supposed to have? Let's say it's against your doctor's orders to eat the pizza. Are you tempted? Yeah, you are, but can you eat the pizza? No, you can't. So there's an example of how you can be tempted even though it's impossible to, to fall. Now, this thought here that the, Jesus is a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, why did the author bring that up here? Here's a suggestion from Adam Clark to, to answer a possible objection from the Judaizers. They could say to the Christians, your high priest has gone away to far, far away heaven. But our high priest is right here in Jerusalem, so our religion is better than your religion. And then the Christians could answer back to the Jewish, to the Jewish religion, to the to the to, to the adherents of the Jewish religion, the Christian could say, he might be far away, but he was down here, and he suffered a lot as a human, so he can sympathize with our weaknesses. We go to verse 16, and we'll finish it up. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. What's the therefore, therefore? Because we have a high priest who can sympathize with us, and because he's there, therefore, let us approach the throne of grace. The throne of grace. In other words, he's there, he's willing, he's able, he wants to pray for us, he wants to intercede for us, so let's just go on up there and approach him. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. Now, the throne of grace is the antitype of the Old Testament type, which was the mercy seat. That was the Old Testament throne of grace. That was the lid on the top of the ark in the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies, of course, is the throne room of God in the Old Testament, the type of that. The ark, the mercy seat, was between the cherubim, and the Shekinah glory dwelt between the cherubim. So the Shekinah glory was over the mercy seat, so you got blood there giving atonement, you get the Holy Spirit there, and all of that is belongs to to the Christian via the means of the high priest who went into the Holy of Holies. 
And so likewise, we go into the heavenly holy of holies. We got Jesus there. We got the Holy. We got Jesus as the high priest that's there. We got the Holy Spirit there. We have blood atonement, and we have God there. So we can be bold. And I'll tell you, when you're burdened down with your sins and your failures and everything, and you know you can go straight to God and say, Oh, God, help me through this mess that I've created for myself, or help me through this mess that other people have created for me, go do it. Go with boldness. He doesn't mind. He wants you to come. Because of the blood that he shed for you, that means that gives you perfect right to enter into the throne room of grace and to make your petitions made known to him, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time, whenever we need it at the proper time. Now, somebody has said the difference between mercy and grace is mercy is forgiveness. Mercy is not getting something bad that you deserve. Grace is getting something good that you don't deserve. That's pretty clever. Both are nice and are ours if we just appropriate it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm finished with Hebrews 4. In our next audio, we'll start with chapter 5, do the first 10 verses, and we'll talk about Jesus the High Priest as the author discusses that a little more thoroughly. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.